If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, that's what we're going to, verses 12 through 20 is what we'll look at tonight. You may remember in the last passage, Paul hammered the fact that as Christians, the Corinthians are no longer what they once were by virtue of their blood-bought, spirit-infused union with Christ. They have experienced an irreversible break with the past, which is good news. And so now Paul is moving on to explain what that experience means for how they think about their bodies. So let's look at what he has to say. We'll start at verse 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to focus on verses 12 through 20, starting at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, would you please help us now? Would you please bless us with your Holy Spirit and illumine the meaning of your word to us? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you change them, Lord, to to know you more, to understand you more, and to love you more? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Do you ever think about what your body's, what your body is for? I don't suspect that a whole lot of us do, at least not very uh, intentionally or deeply. And yet the subject is around us almost all of the time. Think about this for a minute. Have you ever thought about how much you eat? This occurred to me uh, the other day. I was sitting and watching my children eat. And they eat a lot. And it seems like more and more all the time. If that's not enough, talk to Betty Ann. She'll tell you about how much the debris eat. It is, uh, it is striking. 
Uh, it's three meals a day, plus snacks, seven days a week, 365 days a year, times 78 plus, 78 plus years on average right now, and, and it's going up, which means more food. It's a lot of meat and potatoes, and then we die. And then, of course, there's clothes and sex. Ever spend any money or time thinking about those things? And yet, despite the investment that we, we put into food and clothing and sex, the, the answers that are out there, they're not very deep or very well thought out. The climax of modern evolutionary thought says that we are only slightly advanced animals. Is that really it? We do tend to act like animals a lot of the time, or does it really even matter? The LGBTQ community doesn't think so. What really matters is that you decide. Whatever our instincts or just feelings suggest, that's what you must do. That's what you're here for. Well, this is what the Corinthians are struggling with too, and here is Paul's answer. He's explaining what the grace of Christ means for how we think about and what we do with our bodies. First, and what our bodies are really for. Second, how that matters. And third, what we should do about it. So let's look at these in turn. Point one, what our bodies are really for. Paul begins with a short quote that appears to be from the Corinthians or to at least represent their thinking. It says, verse 12, all things are lawful for me. And this means that all things are allowed, or they're, they're all permitted, and I decide. It's like that classic birthday song. I know you guys have heard this. It's, it's my party, and I can cry if I want to. Well, here, it's my body, and I can do what I want to with it. The answer to the question in Corinth is, my body is for me. If we're a mission statement, I know that's what you were looking for. It would read, my body exists to serve and satisfy my desires. And so that's what we find in the analogy that follows as well. Verse 13 says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, in just the same way that the stomach was designed to hunger for food and food was designed to satisfy that hunger... So too our bodies were designed to hunger for food and sex and fashion, and in turn, food, fashion, and sex were designed to satisfy them. It's that simple. And yet verse 13 also adds this, God will destroy both one and the other. The Corinthians thought of our bodies as disposable assets. When they're done, they're done. It's like a battery. It's finished, and you put it in the garbage. It reinforces that idea that we're free to do whatever we want with these things. But it also conveys a certain sense of urgency. You see, there's a time limit on our bodies. They only last so long. And so in order to make the most of them, we need to maximize our satisfaction with them for as long as we have them. And that, of course, begs the question, well, how do we best do that? How do we maximize our satisfaction with our bodies? And the answer, historically, statistically, culturally, is sex. 
Perhaps there's some ultra-devoted foodies out there, but, but sex tops the list for most people. It's why it's plastered over so many different modern magazines. It's why the pornography industry is at an all-time high and doesn't see any, any signs of a ceiling. That's also hardly a new or unique thing for our time. In fact, you could probably make a case, a case that, that it was even more prevalent in Paul's day. At his writing, prostitution and all manner of illicit sexuality, homosexuality, bisexuality, whatever kind of sexuality, were commonplace. According to one commentator, the capstone of many ancient dinner parties was not a cribbage game, but a sexual extravaganza. Men, husbands, did not sleep with their wives, but they slept with their concubines, their slaves. It was a, it was a normal experience of, of having people in your home. In fact, it was such a dominant feature of Gentile society that they could be identified by just two things. One, idolatry and sexual immorality. And so the point is, sexual immorality was an inextrict inextricable part of life and the chief thereof. Certainly, people indulge in other kinds of bodily sins like gluttony and drunkenness, but sexual immorality then and still today, it was the crown jewel. It's that activity that epitomized the belief that my body is for me. And that's why Paul's body purpose alternative is leveled so squarely there. He's not excluding the others, but he's going after the cheap representative of them all. And so he responds to their, all things are lawful for me, with verse 12. But not all things are helpful, and I will not be dominated by anything. And most explicitly, verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. See, it's an interesting answer. It's, it's not so much a pure refutation, a contrary black and white statement, but, but a redirection. Paul isn't saying, surprise, we don't actually need food, drink, and sex. You can just stop doing that. I'll tell the kids, you don't need to eat anymore. That's, that's not what Paul's saying. Jesus himself told his disciples otherwise. In Matthew 6, he says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. In the Lord's Prayer, he instructed us to pray for our daily bread. What the problem is, is that the Corinthians have contorted these things into whatever I want ultimate things. And as a result, instead of employing their body to satisfy their desires, their body is co-opting them into satisfying its desires. Even worse, the very desires they're fighting so desperately, so hard, ultimately to satisfy that will provide that relief and that that. Uh, that nirvana that they're hoping for aren't actually relieving their hunger, but they're enhancing it. They haven't discovered a new diet for increased fitness, freedom, and health, but they've fallen into a debilitating addiction. And so Paul corrects them in verse 13 and 14, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Simply put, the real purpose for our bodies is for the Lord. Food, drink, and sex are all means to that end. They're not the end. 
The reason they can't ultimately satisfy is because they're not what our bodies were ultimately made for. And so instead, Paul says, in just the same way that our stomach was designed to hunger for food, so our bodies were designed to hunger for the Lord. And in just the same way that food was designed to satisfy our stomach, so the Lord is the food that satisfies our bodies. If you were to put this in a mission statement, it would read, my body exists to serve the Lord, and it is satisfied in serving the Lord. But that's not quite all. Note, too, the contrast with the Corinthian thinking on the transient nature of our bodies. In contrast to their God will destroy both one and the other, which would mean here that God will destroy both the body and the Lord, Paul reminds them that God instead raised the Lord, and so he will also raise us up by his power. And so in other words, our bodies aren't disposable assets, but eternal properties of our redemption. And therefore, what we do with these things matters. And so point two, how exactly? Perhaps you're already getting some taste for it. Rather than feeding our bodies, we're enslaving ourselves and poisoning them. But there's something even more tragic here. In verse 15 through 17, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is perhaps the most significant area for growth in how the Corinthians, and likely us as well, think about what our bodies are for, how they work. He's correcting our overly compartmentalized and diminutive way that we think about our bodies. And so try to just wrap your mind around Paul's clincher of a proof text. Of all places, Paul takes us back to the garden. The two will become one flesh, that first bodily union. He's saying that that union between Adam and Eve in the garden is analogous to the union of our bodies to Christ. Now just think about that. It means our union with Christ is not just a metaphorical one, but but something much more. As Paul exclaims in verse 15, your bodies are members of Christ. Now we need to acknowledge a degree of incomprehensibility here. And every commentator is quick to do so. This is difficult stuff. How is it that we are united to Christ? And yet, we can still gain a sufficient grasp of this theology, just as Paul has, to correct our understanding of how our bodies fit with our souls in Christ. And so how is that? Well, Paul is saying that our bodies are not nicely compartmentalized, independent, forgettable, disconnected entities, but instead so very intimately connected with our soul and with Christ that to think about one is necessarily to think about the other. It's not so far as like a Vulcan mind meld or something or a single cell organism type merger that erases our diversity and the distinctiveness, but, but a whole person, body and soul, marriage type union with Christ, that our diversity is unified in Christ. 
We are like a cord of three strands that cannot be broken. Our union with Christ is so tight and so enduring that the idea of one flesh applies. We are his body and he is our head. And that irreversibly. See, to put it this another way, think about what else God says about that first union in the garden. In verse 24, he says, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, or as some translations put it, cleave to his wife. I always wondered about that word cleave. Because what I was accustomed to is, is the knife, a cleaver. It's like, so, so I'm supposed to cut off from my wife. instead. Of, and, and so maybe you've thought about that too. Well, the thing is, that giant, big, huge, gruesome chopper of a knife, it separates things that aren't supposed to be separable. That's why it's called a cleaver. It, it breaks apart cleaved things. And that's the idea here. That's where the horror comes from. Paul's saying that what we're doing in sexual immorality is, is like taking a cleaver and hacking parts of the inseparable body of Christ off here and there and then trying to join them to another who is, as a matter of fact, against Christ. And if disgust is coming into your mind, then that's exactly right. It's gross. It's, it's supposed to be unconscionable. It's why Paul screams, in fact, never. And we should too. It's an argument from the tragedy and the incompatibility of it. And that means that what we do with our bodies doesn't just matter, but it matters at the deepest levels of our being. It's to do good or evil, not to some disconnected, disposable part of us, but to our whole person, body and soul, and to Christ. And so point three, what should we do? Well, Paul says, firstly, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. The verb carries an intense sense of urgency with it, if you, if you can't see that. It's not simply run away, but run away as fast as you can right now. And it tells us something then about the power of sexual immorality and our weakness to it. Sexual immorality isn't the kind of enemy that we can simply stand up to or that we could somehow master, but it's like a wild forever kind of snake. We could try to fight it, and we might even win sometimes. But no matter how careful or well, how well-trained we might be, eventually everyone that plays around, that keeps playing around with wild snakes, gets bit. And so our best defense isn't fighting, but avoiding. And if we should ever come face to face with one, it's to just plain run. But our weakness isn't the only problem. Paul continues in verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so this snake's bite, as it were, is devastatingly powerful. It's like that central nervous system shut down, rotting out your insides kind of rattlesnake spider venom. Paul's telling us that even, it's even more dangerous than other sins. And so don't even think about it. Don't mess around with it. Don't go near it. Stay away from it. It's just too strong and we're too weak. But there's something else here, a further justification for our avoidance. In verse 19a, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
Now, this is amazing news. And at the same time, it ups the ante radically. In chapter 3, verse 16, you perhaps remember Paul told the Corinthians that the church corporately is the temple of God. And that was huge. It was radical. They were supposed to know it, but they didn't know it. They didn't act like it. But now Paul's extending that to the Christian individually and their body in particular. So that's really huge. And so try to think about what that means. So far from being diminutive or disposable, the temple represented the climax of material purposes. When David collected the materials for the temple, he he spared no expense. And when Solomon finally built it, he spared no corner of craftsmanship. And why? Because of all things set apart to the Lord, the temple represented that ultimate contact point between God and his people. It was the sign of his favor. It was the place of their communion. And it was the site of his praise and their nourishment. Well, Paul is saying here that that all of that, that's that's what our body's present tense are. And so is that how you think about your body? It means means the repurposing of our bodies for self-worship and sexual immorality isn't only a gruesome tearing off kind of offense, but it's, it's also a scandalous, defiling, and desecration of the holy temple of God. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians then of just who they are, who they belong to. You see, this is the root issue for both us and the Corinthians. He says, verse 19b to 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And so if you're a Christian, this is what happened. This is what happened when you received Christ in the gospel. You were purchased, you were ransomed, you were set free and redeemed by his blood in order to belong to him. And therefore, as Paul continues, ultimately, verse 20b, glorify God with your bodies. This is the end point of what our bodies are really for. They're not for us and our glory, but for him and his. They're not, uh, they're not holy temples for our worship, for, but for his. And so how are you doing? Is this how you think about your body? As I mentioned in the beginning, I doubt very many of us do, intentionally, very deeply, or at least regularly, When we look in the mirror, we're far more likely to ask these questions. What have you done for me? How have you failed me? What are you going to do for me? Then you belong to and are joined to Christ. What can you do for Christ? And so why don't we? Do you ask that question? We probably don't get to that question. Is it just a knowledge problem? Did we just not realize that we'd been bought for a price, that uh, our bodies were designed to glorify God, that the one we really need is the Lord? Maybe, sometimes, rarely, but most of the time, no. It's not so much a head problem, but, but a heart hunger problem. When it comes right down to it, we don't really want to change. And or we feel like we can't, or or it's too late. Our problem is that we have a supremely entrenched, self-centered approach to how we think about our bodies, and we like it that way. 
We like exercising sovereign, totalitarian self-rule. We like being the selfie-centric generation. And we don't want anybody to mess around with it. We want it to stay that course. And on the other side, well, this is just who we are. We are like wild, impassioned animals. We are like animals driven by all-powerful and uninterruptible bodily instincts. When the opportunity for sin is presented to us, well, we melt. We've learned that we can't help ourselves. And so rather than fight or flee, we've resigned ourselves to submit and indulge. We know it's wrong. We know it's a problem. We'll confess it later, maybe, but we're stuck. And there's nothing we nor anyone else can do to change that. And frankly, why, why would they want to bother with us anyway? You see, we've, we've passed over that point of no return a long, long time ago. And so is there any hope for us? Well, that's the, that's the good news here. Yes, absolutely. See, in the last passage, Paul told us that Christ came to the such were some of you. Well, who were they? Verse 9 through 10 tells us they, they were the sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. They're the people who, who were hopelessly driven by and or enslaved to their own self-centered desires. And then Christ, he washed, he sanctified, and he justified them for, as we see here, a better purpose— or as we might put it even better, their real purpose, our real purpose. And that's true for wherever we find ourselves today. Whether you've ever come to Christ, this is how you, you find salvation. This is the way out. If you feel enslaved, entrenched, this is the way back out. Remember, Paul, he's not talking to arrived Christians. He's talking to the Corinthians. He's talking to the desperately struggling, often clueless, and frequently foolish Corinthian Christians. And so there's a wonderful, steadfast hope in Christ at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. The good news is that to whatever degree you had been enslaved before, you might feel like you're enslaved today, the chains have been broken. We are not We are not like instinct-driven animals anymore, but we are free and redeemed image bearers of God, and and Christ will never let us go back. That cord of three strands is unbreakable. He will totally complete what he has started. For we are right now indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit to reflect the glory of God to get back up when we fall, and to grow until, by the grace of Christ, we sin no more. And so what do you take away from this? Well, we need to detox, and we need to to learn to hunger again for the Lord. Part of our problem today is that we're so drunk on the sweet-flavored poison of sexual immorality and other bodily sins that we can't even taste the sweetness of the only one who can truly satisfy us. And so what we need to do is we need to lean again on faith. We need to exercise our faith. We need to trust in the direction and promises of God. 
We need to turn away the old man from our sinful desires, confess them to the Lord, and plead again for the healing mercy and grace of God. That's the detox process. And then we need to cling and savor Christ. This is the hunger process, and as we commit to it, we'll be increasingly inclined to submit our bodies to him and to be satisfied in him and to glorify God with our bodies. And so let's just try to wrap our hearts around this. Something you can't escape, and Paul's exposition here is is the comparison between the relationship with a prostitute and the relationship with Christ. So think about that. In the case of the prostitute, we think she is all to our gain. She's satisfying all of our secret desires. It's the ultimate maximum satisfaction, but it's an illusion. We're only there for ourselves. It's all to our hurt, and she's only there for herself. The hired hand never has any love lost for their employer, and neither their employer for them. It's like a relationship with a paper plate. You know what you do after you're done with a paper plate? Well, you you don't care about the paper plate. You have no use for it. It's dirty, and you don't care about it anymore, and it's the same way here. But everything is different between us and the Lord. We are the match that was ordained in heaven before time. This is the relationship from which every right kind of relationship takes its shape. And the whole idea of soulmates was derived. Further, he came to us when we were dirty, when we were of no use to him at all. I love how Paul describes this in Ephesians 5, 25 through 30. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It's like, it's like Paul can't tumble out enough thoughts to express the adoration and the hunger and the pursuit of Christ for his bride. And why such radical, sacrificial love? Well, Paul says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. That's how Christ loves us. This is not an instant gratification, fee-for-service, disposable kind of relationship, but this is true love. This is, this is the definition of love. Christ has not transferred us from one slavery to another, but a salvation, reconciliation, an eternal union from which, for what he was willing and in fact did give his own life. And it's a union, as Paul has so clearly expressed here, in which he loves us both spiritually and bodily. And so our submitting our bodies to the service, respect, and worship of the Lord isn't to our deprivation, but to our health and protection. He's who we were made for. And so, are you feeling hungry, rightly? We have every reason to. And so let's strive to pour ourselves into Christ as he has poured himself into us and then rejoice and be satisfied in the realization of that match planned before the world began, in which everything, 
Absolutely everything is love gained, expressed, and glorified, and that forever. And as we do that, God will be glorified in our bodies. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, we confess to you tonight that we, we have become a complacent people in our sin with our bodies, that we are quite comfortable to think of them as uh, disconnected, disposable assets that we can do whatever we feel like with. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open us up, open our eyes up, convict us, and, Lord, help us to see what you have purposed our bodies for. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a whole body, soul, strength, adoration for Christ, a love that reciprocates the love that you have shown to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that you have bound us to yourself. And so that when we look in the mirror, Lord, we would not see whoever, 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 but we would see man or woman in Christ. And that, Lord, then we might ask, what can we do for Christ? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.